Popular Mechanics has been around for a long time, since 1902, in fact. And while we're always looking for new ways to tackle hard projects, sometimes we wonder how much advice we have laying around in 115 years of archives. Lately, we've been digging through our old issues, and we found some seriously awesome tricks. For example, here's one from 1940. Do you need to copy an irregular molding or cornice in your house, but you can't take it down to trace it on a sheet of paper? Just take a deck or two of cards, stack them on top of each other, and press the loose ends over the irregular contour. Then, holding the cards tightly together so they don't slip, lay the pattern they've formed against a sheet of paper and trace. On today's episode of The Most Useful Podcast Ever, we dig into our own histories to find useful tips. First, for a segment we're calling The Most Useful Off, Kevin, Alex, and I bring one item into the podcast studio from our real lives that we think has made the biggest difference in terms of time or energy saved. After that, CNET senior editor Dan Ackerman stops by to debate technology preferences with Alex George, the curious idiot tries to get video files off his phone, and automotive editor Ezra Dyer goes 70 miles an hour on a jet ski. What's your most useful item? If you've got one, send us an email at editor at popularmechanics.com or tweet at us at M-U-P-E podcast. We'd love to know what your item is and maybe even feature it on a future episode. As always, I'm your host, Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. So we have a special guest here today for something we are calling the computer conflict, the smartphone scuffle, the future of consumer technology free for all. Dan Ackerman from CNET. He's a senior editor. Welcome to our podcast room. Happy to be here. And we also have our technology editor, Alex George. Let's throw down. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's about to get real. You guys have talked before this, I guess we should say, about some things in technology that you have strong opinions about. So let's start off by talking about virtual reality. I know that, Dan, you are a big fan of virtual reality. Is that correct? I enjoy the experience, and I've played around with it since the very beginnings of the current generation of virtual reality, which goes back to maybe 2011, 2012, when you saw the first prototypes of things like the Oculus Rift. I think it's a transformative experience, but it's not for everybody. The question for a lot of them right now is, like Google and a lot of the other ones are asking, how do we have people use it more than once? A lot of what we use fits into our daily routines in some way. Virtual reality, I have a hard time picturing a part of my day in which that's useful. Yeah, there's a high barrier to entry, especially with the PC stuff. You have to get a fancy computer. You have to get an expensive headset. You have to know how to hook it up and set it up. You may have to set up these little cameras to watch you and set up the boundaries. And that's why it's not something you should be maybe the primary owner or user of. And it's getting a little more like the phone ones, like the Gear VR style stuff and the standalones are a little easier to use. And even the new Windows, they call them mixed reality headsets. They're just starting to come out this month that are less expensive and just plug into a computer, don't need those base stations or anything. They're not great. They're not perfect. But it shows a trend towards easier to use. Definitely, yeah. In terms of how much effort companies like Google or Oculus and uh, Samsung are going to put into this, the barrier that I have a hard time getting over is it's really hard to make money doing VR. Oh, it is. Because a lot of software companies are based on this idea of advertising plus an indispensable service, Facebook, whatever. And so putting that into VR, I haven't talked to anybody who really seems to have cracked it. And it seems like that barrier is so high that it makes me nervous about how much progress is going to come out of it and how much we can realistically expect from it very yeah, soon. Yeah, I think that's a real problem. Uh, a lot of the big VR projects have basically been funded by deep-pocketed companies. Facebook owns Oculus, which they bought for like $2 billion. Mm-hmm. And they've basically handed money to software developers to make cool games for it. But how long is that a sustainable model? I don't know. It was so cool when it came out. And like, I don't know. And they really missed 
a lot of opportunities in the first year or two, and now it's sort of like, can they get that momentum back? And even though I like it and I think it's a cool technology, I'm not sure that they haven't really missed the boat on it. Right. Okay, next topic. Unlimited phone data plans. I have a very strong opinion on this one myself because I was a longtime AT&T. I had the original unlimited data plan, grandfathered in, and Alex was constantly telling me that I needed to uh, get rid of it. But now you say that you're pro. You're not in your head. Yeah. Did you have an AT&T? It's I had that, that too. It's that plan that was a problem because you were grandfathered in, but you couldn't use it for tethering, mm-hmm, which is becoming mm-hmm. increasingly important. So I eventually ditched mine for a regular, I just did last whatever week. it is, 15 gigs, whatever the comparable price is with tethering because that's become so useful. Also because, frankly, you don't really want to use public Wi-Fi anymore. I think we've gotten to the point where everyone should just tether their personal phones. It's the most secure device you have. It's encrypted. It's biometrically locked. So if you go to Starbucks or any place like that, just pull out your phone and tether it. Yeah. So So do you have a plan that you like that you think is ideal? No. T-Mobile is the one that I had. The skill of an effective customer complaint can get you a lot of places, and that was what I tried to use. So I said, you know, we're paying this much for it. I know you have a promotional deal. What can you do for me with that? That was how I eventually got to this unlimited plan, which ended up costing less than what I was paying before, and to add an iPad. And I was like, oh, that sounds good, but I know you're up to something. Until next time. People always ask me, whether it's buying the phone itself or the service, this plan, that plan, that we go from contracts to not contracts. There's no formulation at the end of the day where you're giving these companies less money. That's not the business yeah. plan. So no matter how you slice it, you're never really getting a deal. And even when they say unlimited, it's never really unlimited. Mm-hmm. Hopefully the lesson for anybody who's listening is if you've just kind of lived with your deal right now, you can use these new offerings that they're using to try and lure new customers to your advantage that way. Even if you're a longtime customer and you're not interested in changing, maybe pretend like you are, you can use that to get more out of your device. Negotiate. Yeah. yeah, I feel like people get hung up on how much data they have. I mean, I use my phone for tethering my laptop all the time. I've never come close to using up whatever it is, 12, 15 gigs of data. Definitely. You know, never even close. Don't stream video at the coffee shop then. I don't know what to tell you. So computer-wise, if you're going to get a basic home computer, what do you get? I heard that you, Dan, are pro the basic MacBook. Is that correct? Well, the basic MacBook is not the least expensive one. It's the one that's just the MacBook. It's, it's called that. It's a 12-inch model. It's kind of fancy. I think it's twelve ninety nine, but it's a nice high-end machine, and frankly, it's so small and so light. I thought it was underpowered and didn't have enough ports, and the screen was too small, and the keyboard was too flat. I started using one. It became my favorite laptop. It was a dark horse. You can't judge everything by the spec list. You really have to get your hands on and try these things. You probably get this question very often as well, like, which laptop do I get? So my experience with the MacBook MacBook, not the MacBook Air, not the MacBook Pro, just the MacBook. It's small, it's a little bit slow, but I will concede that something that I ask everybody who's asking about a new laptop, are you doing video editing? If the answer is no, you probably don't need a brand new laptop. You don't need a high-end spec MacBook Pro or anything like that. In which case, yeah, I think that that recommendation generally applies to a lot of people. But the part I can't quite wrap my head around, the MacBook Air, it still exists. You can still buy that one. It does still exist. And they gave it a very small revision this year, a tiny spec boost to the CPU, not even to a newer generation of processor. It's still a perfectly fine machine. People buy them, use them. You can get them for $899 now, which is great. But it's so dated in so many other ways in that it has a very low low-resolution display. That design is seven or eight years old. If you look at a newer laptop, even a Windows one, you go, oh, these are nicer. If you have eight, nine hundred bucks and you want to get a laptop that's going to last like five years, get a MacBook Air, but you're not going to be the most styling guy at the coffee shop then. Okay. My advice to anybody who's buying a laptop, Apple's refurbished site is pretty great. That's they have it. some good stuff up there sometimes. Yeah, definitely. The MacBook is great. These other ones, yeah. I mean, it comes down to the priority about the display size. The MacBook Air has such a 
place in my heart that seeing that as the kind of successor to it, I do understand your, you know, how I mean, that it was the laptop you. for years and years and years. Whenever somebody said, what laptop should I get? You start from there and then move in another direction based on what they need. This has got to be like the most polite debate I think we've ever had. You guys <laughs> right. are both like, well, I see your point and I do agree with you. We're trying to change the culture here, okay? <laughs> We're trying to change the tenor of American debate. One last piece of advice. Do you guys have a, a thing that you always say to people when they ask you for your biggest piece of tech advice? Airplane mobile charging. It's a big one. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. I tell people to not worry about the latest and the greatest. Just find things that you like and you enjoy. If it's worth it to you, then it's worth it. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Dan, for stopping by. And I heard you have a new podcast. I do. We just started the CNET Book Club, where we talk to different authors every couple of months, and we read cool books and stuff. And then speaking of books, of course, I always like to tell people about my book, The Tetris Effect, the real-life Cold War story about how Western companies stole Tetris from the Soviet Union and how the Russians put together a secret economic hit squad to get the money back. Wow. That's That's rough. The Russians are after everything, even Tetris. Cold War, man. It's back again. (laughs) Well, thank you. And everybody check out his podcast. I'm sure it is wonderful. We have our curious idiot here today, Kevin Deepsig. It's always a pleasure to get that introduction <laughs> every time. He's not an idiot. He knows lots and lots of things, but he does have some silly questions sometimes. Yeah. It's just that my <laughs> questions are particularly stupid. <laughs> and we also have Alex George, who is our tech editor, as you all know, and he's going to answer some questions. Let's do it. All right. What's your question? Well, so Peter Martin and I have been taking a video editing class to okay. try and learn some new tricks. And so we shot some video actually from a previous Moop episode during pumpkin carving. And we wanted to take that video and we just shot it on our iPhones and use it in the video editing class as like sample footage to mess around with. I quickly ran into a problem, which is that video makes like sort of a big file and there's file limits on how much you can email. So I had this video and I just had no idea how to get off my phone. Because I couldn't email it to myself. I need to get it to any laptop so that I could put it on a thumb drive to take to class. And what I ended up doing, which seemed like there has to be a better way, is that I happened to have the Dropbox app on my phone. And so I was able to upload it to Dropbox using the app on my phone. And then I went on Dropbox on a computer, downloaded it, and then I put it on the thumb drive. But I was just thinking that if I was somebody who didn't have Dropbox, then what would I have done? And I just want to know what the right way is to do this. So this is not an idiotic problem. This is just this issue with video, that video is always enormous files, and email is not equipped to handle it, so you have to do something kind of like Dropbox for it. The problem is that when you shoot with a phone on iOS or on Android, Android makes it a little bit easier, but phones are set up to make it very easy to manipulate files and move them around the way they are on a laptop. Right. The question is if you have cloud storage or not. So if you have a Dropbox account or iCloud. Those are the main ones. Yeah. But the problem with those is that, especially if you shoot a ton of video, they just fill it up really, really quickly. And typically, they do some kind of compression where, you know, you lose a little bit of the quality or re-downloading it. You're going to lose some of it. And mm. when we did the video issue, every single person who professionally makes videos uses big external hard drives. And they just have them there. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, nobody uses, like, I mean, they have a version of it as a backup or something like that. But everybody still uses external hard drives. That's the huh. quickest way to do it. So the best way to do it, so you have an iPhone, right? Yeah. Whenever I have to do that, so I have iCloud and it syncs it up there. But if I had to do it, I would do AirDrop, which is a function where if the lap, oh, okay. if it's a MacBook, if it's a Mac laptop or Mac computer, you have Wi-Fi on and have Bluetooth on, both your phone and there, and you have it set up to allow it, you can choose, you know, that little square on the bottom left when you're looking at the video on mm-hmm. your phone and yeah. it has a little arrow going up. That'll have an option for AirDrop if the oh, computer is okay. close by. The best way to do it is to do what you did using Dropbox and have it something Very like that. Very not satisfying. Can, it's can not, I ask an AirDrop question? Yeah. How do you avoid accidentally 
airdropping your stuff to somebody else. And I feel like I've also had trouble finding my computer. I've, heard, on, I've had a hard time You know what I mean? Like, too. it's just, I turn on airdrop and then I'm like, I feel like I've just exposed myself to everybody mm-hmm. and I don't know what's happening. On iPhones, it's settings, general, airdrop, and then you can set it to receive from, you can turn receiving off entirely, contacts only, or everyone. So I think by default, it does everyone. So Yeah, I think I have it under everyone. Yeah. So does that help you with your video situation? Yeah. Are you going to try that? It did help. I do have one other question, though, because now that I've taken this video class, and I think I'm sort of more savvy about video, yeah. this compression thing, is there an easy way to tell if Dropbox or iCloud or whatever you've done has compressed the video and lost some of the quality? You have to assess which service you're using. So if Google Photos, for example, compresses everything pretty heavily because it's free mm-hmm. and it's unlimited, and that's kind of how they get away with doing something like that. It's funny you should mention this. I was at the Apple Genius Bar last night. I've been working on the story where I want to overhaul my photo and video collection, and it was explaining how basically what makes cloud storage work, like having it conveniently be like able to access everything, is that they figure out clever ways of making it not look like they're making it a less quality file. Mm-hmm. But actually, they're shrinking it, so it's actually able to be moved oh, around really quickly like that. It's pretty hard to escape it. So one fail-safe method that the guy there told me was that this is all to the point of how not easy this is and how reasonable your question is, is that if you go sign into iCloud on a web browser and then find the photo and then click the like little download there, that will give you a full-resolution original version of it. It's harder to get it like just through an app or through if you have it on your phone and then so you want to get it out on your iPad or something like and that. And that's to save them data that's moving around? Yeah, and yeah. to also make it so... Like save you it's data more too. seamless, right? Yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of people's purposes where it's you're just putting it up on Instagram or it's gonna be watched on a small screen, it doesn't yeah, it's fine. that's okay. That solves a lot of people's needs. So it's reasonable, but it is kind of annoying. It kind of comes down to having cloud storage of some type. It sucks, but if you do this professionally to something like Adobe Premiere, they have this whole system where it you know it syncs across devices and it doesn't compress it and uh, you can edit it in different places and access it pretty quickly. That costs ten bucks a month or something like that. That gets yeah. into the kind of professional realm for that. Yeah. Besides that, yeah, sharing it between sending a video as an airdrop or uh, the other option too is on the new iOS, so the new operating system for iPhones is to, you know, there's a files folder now, mm-hmm. and yeah, so you can save that. it there. Now, I'm fairly certain that that will do some kind of compression as well, so that might not be reliable, but so I think that what you did with Dropbox, okay. that's the best policy. The free Dropbox, I forget what the capacity is right now, it's really small. Yeah. So if you do something like that, you'll be able to do it, but you should like go in and make you sure to, to delete it. out pretty quickly. Yeah. Correct, yeah. Yeah, delete okay. it after you copy it. But yeah, guys who make cloud stuff, please make this easier. This is, it's annoying. <laughs> it make, giving Kevin serious anxiety about all yeah, this. Yeah, you're turning yeah. Kevin into an idiot, and he's, yeah. not, he's not. Thanks, guys, and happy video editing. I don't know that we've ever actually called out the person who comes on here to give all of our facts, but that's Eleanor Hildebrandt. She's an editorial assistant, and she's very, very good at finding facts. I don't know if you've noticed. I love facts. <laughs> yeah. And today you have scat facts. Scat facts. Bop, bop, doop, bop, bop. Scat facts. Is that the different kind? Different kind of scat. Oh, different kind <laughs> no. of scat. Oh, okay. But that was very nice. <laughs> so what kind of scat are we talking about here? So we are talking about poop. Oh, poop. An- oh. Animal fecal droppings, to be precise. <laughs> Usually wild animals, Okay. I guess. Animal fecal droppings. <laughs> You've never heard you it. You think you I've would never need heard to it say said it. so formally. Yeah. Like that. I feel like I have to be more formal because I'm on a podcast. And yeah. I'm just like, oh, it's, it's poop. It's just poop. Yeah. I have a couple. I have some short facts, and then I have one bonkers scat fact. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. Very this is excited. The bonkers this scat fact to share with you. So the first is kind of, it's a little bit gross, but <laughs> storks use their droppings to cool themselves off by pooping on their legs. So if they're overheated, <laughs> they'll just, you know, let it rip, and then that cools them down. 
It's like peeing in your wetsuit, but in reverse. Yeah. Vultures <laughs> do the same thing. And apparently, so you know how vultures eat like rotting meat and they never get sick. Yeah. So they have some sort of something protective going on in their stomachs. And then the same thing happens. They'll like disinfect their feet by pooping on them. Whoa. Yeah. That's kind of a cool superpower. That is it cool. is. Yeah. That's cool. It's like evolution at work. Like that's yeah. amazing. I was say, can yeah. we get like vulture stomach things and then we could just eat a bunch of junk on vacation from like street stands in yeah. Thailand and be fine? Like is that an option? But I don't want to poop on my feet in thailand i, I yeah. prefer not to be yeah. on my feet ever well if you go to the street stands you, <laughs> you might yeah that's true right. <laughs> might not have a choice uh so my second short fact is kind of a fun one parrotfish eat algae off of coral but they're not very good at precision so they'll eat a lot of coral as well and then dumb dumb parrotfish <laughs> stupid that goes through like it gets like ground up in the back of their throats and comes out their rear end as sand so all that beautiful like white sand that you see that's parrotfish poop is it all like no not all but a lot it's one fish can produce more than 800 pounds of sand in a a year. That's crazy. That's amazing. That's a lot of sand. I love that I know this That might be my best fact, my favorite fact from all of That's my favorite fact, too. Hold on to your... Hold on to your butts. (laughs) Hold on to your butts. This last one, this is my favorite fact. So we did bat facts recently, and I was talking about guano and how people, like, fought wars over it because it was such a good fertilizer and, like... It was just a big deal. I didn't know how big of a deal it was. In 1856, the U.S. passed the Guano Islands Act, which said that if you went and found guano, which is bird or bat poop, on any island, rock, or key, you can just claim it. Like, if it doesn't already belong to a country, you can have it. And it will belong to the U.S., but you can process all of this. You get the whole island or just the... the whole thing. And you can sell the fertilizer for $8 a ton in 1856, which is like, I don't know how much that is today. Not that Are there any undiscovered islands that are covered in bats that we should look for? Not that I'm aware of, but keep an eye out. Yeah. Because so it's, it's still, still in effect? Oh, it's still so on the So if you're books. on a cruise and you find a tiny island and it's covered in bat crap... That's your island. Get, That's it's your island. island. You have to stay there, so oh, well, keep that in mind. Still, okay. I mean, you just build a house there, then you go in the summer. Get so. some, yeah. like, bat netting. That's a thing, Who right? Who doesn't want to have their own island? Full of bats. I can't <laughs> believe it. That's amazing. And that's been Scat Facts. Scat Facts. So we were calling this the mortar primer. And the reason that we're going to do this is that Peter Martin put together a bluestone patio. How did that go? I should have had this primer before I did that. I did have the primer, though, is the thing. Roy spent weeks walking me through this, and I think it just taught me that no matter how much I prepare for anything, I'm always going to screw up a very important step of it. Well, but now you know. Yeah, well, don't feel too badly, Peter. Mortar-based masonry, it's not that easy. simple. No, no it's, not, it's, not, it's not easy. <laughs> it, it looks easy when you see experienced masons do it because this is what they do for a living. But it turns out to be surprisingly tricky. What happened with, well, with so your bluestone patio? We had a concrete backyard that we decided we would put bluestone on top of. And I learned from Roy. I did a bunch of research online. I called some people. And we were just going to put mortar down, put bluestone on top. And then what we did wrong, I don't know if you've ever done a backsplash or tile work where you grout it. I have not. I know roughly how grout works. So at the end, you take this grout float, rub it over the thing, and then you can basically clean all the grout off the tile it washes off because the tile is glass or whatever and it's not porous. And it's great. 
my brother-in-law and I worked on setting the stones in the mortar. And then my wife went back with mortar and just kind of using her fingers jammed it in the joints because the mortar was thick enough that it wasn't pushing up to fill the gaps between the stones as Mm -hmm. we did it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it did, but often it wouldn't. And so she went back and filled that and tried to wipe it down. She had a sponge and a bucket and was trying to wipe it off with the sponge and bucket. But obviously that water gets very gross pretty quickly. The sponge doesn't get fully clean. So we finished pulled the tarp off after the rain, looked at it, and there was a haze of mortar over all of the stone. Because with the porous stone, it just went right in. So you sent an email to Roy that said, look, uh, <laughs> we're, it's dirty, but it's done. My first email was celebratory. I thought it was just going to wash off because I pulled the tarp up. There was a little moisture there. saw the wet. It's like, parts of it look great. I bet it washes off. I'm very excited. Roy was very supportive. And then the next day <laughs> after the sun came out, my wife looked out the window and was just like, oh, it looks like the concrete. And oh, after, no. After oh. putting whatever 5,000 pounds of stone back there, we don't really want it to look like concrete anymore. So so what had they done wrong? Well, let's start at the beginning. Mortar is different than, <laughs> than grout. There is a mortar-like substance in the masonry trade called grout that's used to fill concrete block cavities. That's a pumpable, horrible, cementatious material. It fills up block cores. I want to draw that distinction because it's important when you're talking tile work, that's a whole other type of grout. But the most important thing is is that mortar is, I hate to use such a big word, but I can't think of anything else. Cementatious? Cementatious. Ooh. I just it's, learned that 10 seconds ago. I know. Ago I was like, I didn't it. know that was a word. It's <laughs> cementatious or cement-based glue that goes between either masonry units such as brick Bricks. or concrete block or between stone or, in this case, bluestone. And that's the heart of it right there, Peter. Anytime you're using mortar, there are a few rare exceptions with rock work. Generally, the mortar is of a consistency and a formulation that allows the mortar to squeeze out between, or in this case, under that piece of masonry. And then you strike off the excess mortar on a trowel. Sometimes it falls on the ground, but you try to get the excess off with a trowel. Then you apply that excess to the next thing that you're mortaring. You don't want to spread that mortar. I know this now. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like a gloss you put over everything. (laughs) Well, also when it's wet, you can't see it. Yeah. So, you know, we looked at some pictures of it and I said, well, okay, now we got to resort to saving this. Yeah, to saving this. Well, I also called the guys at Quickrete who made the mortar mix that I bought to see if they had any suggestions. And the guy told me to go outside and wash it with vinegar and a brush, which I did, which helped a little bit. Okay. But not nearly not, enough. Not enough. He didn't realize the extent of your mistake. I don't think he knew yeah, how much I had done. So Roy found a company called ProSoco, which makes a thing called Vanitrol. And that is just this gallon jug of pretty nasty acid that I had to wear yeah. gloves and eye protection and everything Ooh. else to work with. But you water it down. So we did it six to one or something. You call in, tell them what's going on. And the woman suggested six to one and then to go down to three to one if I had to. Yeah, which is a very powerful acid mixture. Yeah. We ended up around one. four because I was scared of three and just somehow maybe that would eat the stone away. I don't know. So <laughs> <laughs> You'd have nothing left in your <laughs> You're like, even oh, it's all over. Now <laughs> I just did all this for nothing. But you spray it on the stone out of a little garden sprayer so it just mists over the stone it's awesome because you can see it working it starts to foam up white when it hits any of the mortar so that immediately made me feel a little better that something good was happening uh-huh. and then you either take a brick rub which is a tool i had never heard of before that roy told me about what is that it rubs away mortar it's a sharpening stone basically okay. on a handle it's extremely coarse so it's like a shower scrubber but like way way more serious <laughs> right yeah way way way. Yeah. <laughs> Don't use it as way. a shower scrubber. Yeah, you'll have so no the- shower left. Amazingly, it also didn't... <laughs> or body. <laughs> it didn't scratch up the stone very badly either, because there are little bits of mortar that I would use the rub to rub it off, 
And I worried that the stone's going to be all scratched when this is done. Still look better than having a mortar haze on it, so we didn't care. They make it out of just the right abrasive so that you can go over brick and, in some cases, concrete and abrade away that loose mortar or concrete splatters or mortar splatters and not really harm the surface. Yeah. yeah. So we use that and just a regular stiff bristled brush to try to rub it off. And you spray it on, let it rest for five minutes, and then you spray it again, then you start working. It's not perfect, but it's not crushing either. But I, it, this Vanitrol stuff was so good that even if you didn't do what I did and spread it everywhere, if you have a couple thick joints and whatever else, you just spray it on the joint. It's amazing how it loosens or weakens the mortar enough that with a rub, you can rub the extra mortar off. Hey, so protection-wise, eye protection, hand protection, oh, yeah. All of the above. respiratory? Respiratory uh, would have been smart. I didn't do it, but we were outside, so I didn't worry too much right. about any sort of the air is constantly moving, so we were okay. Well, so that sounds like a great idea. Peter, I'm glad that you are not soul-crushed by Me your either. Blue it looks experience. Great. To your credit, Peter, I saw a picture of this Jackie. I can vouch for it. He did a very nice job, especially for a first-time Mason. Great. Credit, that. credit, that's credit, huge. Credit from, Roy. from Roy. That's yeah. like winning an award. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Kevin's idea to do the most useful off here in the podcast room, which, was it your idea? I don't know. Maybe it was Peter's idea. I think it seems like a Peter. And then, of course, he disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, which is what he does. But this is called the most useful off. And basically, we figured since we work here and often get access to really cool stuff, we should come on the podcast and talk about what each of our actual most favorite useful item that we have in our real lives is. Yeah. So we have Alex George here. Who might win? I feel like Alex George has a lot of useful stuff. And is always trying more things. Probably the most prolific, most useful item user in the office. A low effort chance to be very minimally more efficient. I'm there. (laughs) Anytime. And then we also have Kevin Dupsick, who has a nifty little thing as well. Yeah. Mine's a little bit meta. It's related to podcasts. One of the app purchases I did, I was researching all of them. There's this one called Overcast. So that's the one that I use right now. I have friends who like this. Yeah, I've heard of that. They have a free version with little ads on the screen. But I paid, I think it was $5 for it. But whatever it was, it was completely worth it. And I use it every single day. And it's one of those things, like, you've told me I had to go back to a different one. I would not use it. And what are the benefits of it? It's really intuitive, kind of Apple-style interface on it. But the main part that gets me is that you can set it into kind of like a dark mode. You can have it be, you know, just kind of look really fluid that way. But the main thing, it has these features where it'll fill in silences It'll boost the vocals, so it'll optimize the audio output. People sound much better than if it's tuned for music. And the other word that I use that people seem to hate is I bump it up to about 1.5 speed. Oh, yeah, I hate when people do that. (laughs) So it's tuned so people don't sound like chipmunks when they're doing it. But once you kind of get used to it, you can just burn through so much more, so much more quickly. And I really like that feature for it. But also, the guy who makes it is this uh, guy named Marco Arment, and he writes a regular weblog and does his own podcast called the Accidental Tech Podcast, which is fantastic. It's him and these other Apple geeks talking about iPhone design and all those other things. The app gets updated a whole bunch, and it's just it stays really current, and it just sounds really good. Okay, and remind me of the name of this? Overcast. Overcast. Okay. So, Kevin, what did you bring? So... As I've said on here a few times, I moved recently, like a few months ago, so I'm still kind of like finding things to hang on the wall and all that kind of stuff. So I brought something I've been using a lot, which is my Ryobi Air Grip Laser Level. Ooh. I got this for Christmas one year. I didn't even know this existed, and as soon as I like looked at the packaging and realized what it was, I lost my mind. <laughs> so basically, it's a little round device, and it has like a suction cup on the back, and you stick it on the wall, you level it out, and then you turn it on. It makes it sound like this. Whoa. Because that's like sucking the air out of the suction cup to create a vacuum. And when you stick it on the wall and turn it on, it holds itself in place. And it projects a laser line 
you know, all the way until it hits the other side of the room or whatever. So it gives you a horizontal or vertical level line. And that way, like, I've been hanging a lot of pictures where I need to put two nails that are level with each uh-huh, other. Uh-huh. But also, like, in our podcast room, we have soundproofing on the walls. And when Roy and I came in here to do this, we used a chalk line to create a long, straight line so that we knew how to keep all the pieces of sound insulation foam on a line where you could, mm-hmm. you could do that with this really easily. It's nice to have the level right there and it solves something that I do a lot that drives me crazy when I hang pictures, which is where I'm like holding the tape measure and trying to hold a level right against the tape mm-hmm. measure. And I'm trying to like measure and keep it level. And I just, I end up sliding my thumb against it or the tape measure folds. This is so easy. You stick it up there, it holds itself up. Now you still have two hands free. You have a flat line, and now you can mark your points where you need to have two things eight inches apart or where you just want to have two pictures that are far apart on a wall, and it doesn't really matter exactly. You're not doing an exact measurement, but you still just want them to be level so they look the same. Somebody comes into a room, it's the best thing ever. How much does that thing cost? 20 bucks. That's it. The one weakness, I would say, if you live someplace old where the walls are a little janky, so like if there's like a little bulge in the wall that can get in the way of the laser, if you have not horrible walls or like if you're in any new house where it's like a nice flat wall surface... The laser projects really far. Like yeah. It'll go across the whole room. Usually you end up, you measure, like say you know that you want something to be level, and so you pick the closest, what you think is a straight line to measure from. Like you're like, okay, I'm going to measure eight inches down from the ceiling mm-hmm. over here and again over here. And how settles, like your ceiling's not always perfectly mm-hmm. level or your doorways aren't perfectly straight up and down. And so with this, it's independent of whatever the nearest wall is, which may or may not be uniform, which I think is really nice. Very cool thing. I like it. Yeah. All right. So here's what I brought. This is the Eva Solo garlic press. I mean, garlic's in like every recipe ever. And my problem with garlic presses is first of all, they, they require like a ton of hand strength. I was talking to Matt Allen earlier and he mentioned the OXO garlic press, which is also a really good one because it like flips around and you can like push out the garlic bits with your, mm-hmm. which because cleaning a garlic press is annoying. So that's also a good one. But every time I've used one of those, it just doesn't have the power. This one is shaped like... It's like a cyborg tulip. Yeah, it is like a cyborg tulip. And it comes in a little glass thingy that looks kind of like nice. a garlic, actually. Basically, it opens all the way up and it has this like super powerful like chunky thing like i can crush so much garlic i can actually crush ginger in this thing and have really yes it's like power and then the other cool thing about it is when you want to clean it the holes aren't like straight through it they're around the outside like a horseshoe and you can push that piece all the way up and just like wash it out that's really nice that it's that too and not a grid because those tiny little squares yep. it gets like suspended in there like bubble solution and yeah you can't, you can't get it, it out it's but impossible. like this you can get it out from the side if there's something stuck you just pull That's it out because really it's open on one side it is 99 dollars, which is a little expensive can i see it but i've had it for say nine years and it is good as new heavy it's heavy yeah well that's what i'm saying it's it's power man and the joints on there just feel like they don't get caught no they're tough they move really and i cook quickly. a lot say so i probably cook like seriously three days a week pretty seriously yeah. and that thing is just this is pretty press. good and I, I mean i think i've Seriously, I think I've had four garlic presses. Like, <laughs> So I've probably already spent $99. Yeah. You were explaining to me recently why garlic and onions are in pretty much everything. Garlic and onions are in like every cuisine. And I actually Googled it. And it's because they don't really go bad and they have compounds in them that like kill bacteria. All right. So what do we think? Whose is most useful? Hmm. Kevin's got a good showing. I want to buy Kevin's. Yeah. I'm pretty high on board with that kind of a thing. But the fact that you can have both hands free. I like the garlic press. I think all of our things are useful is what I think. Agreed.
Normally, when Ezra Dyer is on the podcast, he is a tinny voice coming through a phone, but he's actually in the office today. So we thought we'd have him on to tell us about a few of the things he's been testing. Welcome, Ezra. Thank you. Glad to be here in the office. And Alex George, our car editor, is here as well. Hey, Jackie. So what have you been testing lately that has been really fun? I feel like you have the most fun job on staff. I do. I won't admit it, but um, <laughs> I've been testing some non-car things lately. You know, we're popular mechanics, not popular cars. So therefore, if some other way to hurl my body across the planet comes my way, then I like to take advantage and, and try out different things. I've had in my garage a Rad Rover fat tire electric bike, which okay. has been a lot of fun. I've put 58 miles on it, and most of that has been off-road. So the challenge, I think, with fat tire bikes is that they're hard to pedal because the tires are fat. This takes care of that by having a 750-watt motor and a lithium battery. So it's a heavy rig, but it goes 20 miles an hour, which is the uh, legal limit. And I think it'll go for 25 or 30 miles if you're on flat ground, but it's good for a solid six-mile beach ride at least with no pedaling. Oh, that'd be so great. Oh, so you can just turn it on. It's not pedal assist. You can actually... It has five levels of pedal assist that you can select, but also it has a twist grip like a dirt bike. So I preferred usually to pedal as if to pretend, hey, look, I'm riding a bicycle. I'm not <laughs> riding a dirt bike past your beach towels, people. This is just uh, a bike. <laughs> but then when I got away from humanity a little bit, I would just throttle up and ride it like a dirt bike. And it's great because you wouldn't be allowed to ride a dirt bike on the beach. Right. The other cool thing about it is that bikes somewhere along the way got to be ludicrously expensive, it seems to me. And a lot of that is because they're made out of exotic materials because everybody's counting every gram that goes into their crank set or their shifter. You know, everything's got to be made out of titanium and carbon fiber. Well, when you've got a big hub motor and a battery, it's heavy anyway. So therefore, everything doesn't have to be super exotic in terms of the components. And the bike itself, the whole deal is 1500 bucks. That's not bad at all. Yeah. That'll get you a pretty normal mountain bike. Right. Never mind a uh, cool electric fat tire bike. That's awesome. This is called the Rad Rover Electric Fat Bike. What else have you been playing with? Also near the water, in the water in this case, the Sea-Doo RXT X300. So what that is, it's their highest performance watercraft. And it's kind of like a little mini race boat. It's 300 horsepower, which believe it or not, isn't that crazy these days. I mean, Kawasaki, I think, has a 310 horsepower model, but it's plenty for something that's like 12 feet long, maybe. It's GPS limited in that when it gets to 67 miles an hour, it slows itself because there's sort of this agreement amongst the companies that make these things that, okay, 67 is fast enough when you're essentially riding an engine with handlebars across the water. <laughs> right. The issue with these things is normally you can't go faster than, let's say, 30, especially if you're out in the ocean, because you'll just be pounding yourself to shreds. Uh -huh. This thing has a pretty trick hull. It's got a deep V. It sort of cleaves through waves. I'd go across boat wakes or something and kept expecting like, oh, this is going to hurt. And then it didn't. It looks pretty hefty. It looks like a super hefty, like almost like a fishing boat that's just smaller with like a seat on it. Yeah, or a motorcycle for the water. That's what it really felt like, is like a motorcycle on the water where you could lean into turns, which is oh, kind wow. of unusual too, like it wouldn't skid out. Yeah, it leans into yeah. turns. And it's definitely not a novice machine because sometimes it felt a little skittish, like it was riding right up on that narrow uh, blade on the bottom. Mm -hmm. It's been likened to balancing a bowling ball on a butter knife or something like that. <laughs> when those race boats are really out of the water, it kind of felt that way. 
I took it down to South Carolina from North Carolina, just on the intercoastal <laughs> waterway. Granted, it wasn't that far, but it's the kind of thing where you go, yeah, let's go to the next state because I can cruise at 50, so why not? I want your job. Let's go to Cuba. <laughs> How do I get it? <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I think those things go for like 16000 So given that if you had a boat that goes 70, you're talking probably six figures minimum for most of them. That seems like a screaming bargain, too. The guy who uh, dropped it off is a professional racer for these things, and he said he takes it from Fort Lauderdale out to Bimini sometimes. So, oh wow, that's a pretty that seems dangerous. So like the length of the state. Well, that's a cool toy when you can go to a different country for lunch. Jeez, yeah, to that's get to the really Bahamas cool. on your sea do. Yeah, see, this <laughs> is what I, this is what I like about these kind of these toys is that you can have different experiences than you would if I get a $50,000 car versus a $40,000 car. I'm really not changing my life very much for, you know, what I'm getting. Whereas if I spend 16,000 on one of these things, maybe I can go to Bimini for lunch now. I've right. got, you know, I'm, I've unlocked some opportunities. If I've got my fat tire bike, I can go ride my secret dirt bike on the beach. Which brings me to my final couple of cool toys that I tested, which were the BMW C650S scooter and the R9T Scrambler motorcycle. So the scooter costs about 11,000 and the motorcycle starts at 13. So they're pretty close in price. So I was kind of doing a mental like, which one would I rather have? On the face of it, I would say, oh, of course, the motorcycle. I mean, that is a cool looking bike. It has this sort of vintage look with the slightly knobby tires that just say, hey, I'm ready to go anywhere. Let's go ride cross country. And some of it can be dirt and that's okay. Yeah, it looks very like Steve McQueen, Great Escape. And it's fast and, you know, it's all good fun. Whereas the scooter looks like a scooter, and sometimes it can make itself look even more scooterish because it's got a power windshield that can oh raise, raise and lower. So <laughs> it's built for comfort, that's for sure. But that's the thing is that when I was riding these two, I would go out of my way to find excuses to ride the scooter because it does 100 miles an hour. You can surprise some people when you merge out into traffic with a 100-mile-an-hour scooter, and they look right. over, and they're thinking it's the 50cc moped that's getting on the highway, and they're going, what's wrong with this guy? And then all of a sudden, you're going past him. And then that windshield, you know, once you get on the highway, you can raise the windshield up, and you've got a nice, comfy little bubble that you're sitting in. And then when you're going back around town, you can lower it down and have more of an open-air thing going on. It's got lots of storage under the seat. Like, I took it to the grocery store and got groceries and felt very European doing so. Uh-huh. No gears to shift. It's got motorcycle cred and scooter approachability. Yeah. <laughs> so the way we always end this segment is by asking people whether they would buy things or not. So, But I think we should ask you which one of these items you would buy. Oh, if boy. you had the budget just for one of them. I think that I'm going to go with the Sea-Doo because... Really? <laughs> Per my earlier point, it offers the most different kind of experience that I could have. Sort of like the scooter, I found myself using that more than I thought I would and making excuses to go. Uh, I think when I had it in my clutches, I rode it every single day because it was just a riot. <laughs> well, thank you for coming by. And uh, we all want your job. I feel like Alex definitely wants your job. <laughs> so watch <laughs> out. Watch out. If you get a sea wreck, he's coming for yeah. you. All right. That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics Magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.